Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you could be here today. Please go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 19. That's where we're going to be this morning, John chapter 19. And as many of you know, it is Palm Sunday, and it's called Palm Sunday. I know many of you know this, but just in case you don't, they call this Palm Sunday because this was the, the Sunday, this was the first day of the week where Jesus enters into Jerusalem. It's the start of the last week of his life, and the crowds come out there, and they're cheering for him, and, and they're singing his praises, and some of them went out and cut palm branches off of trees, and they came and they laid them down in front of Jesus as he came by. And what's so significant about that is that this was a behavior, this was an action that was only done for royalty, for kings and queens and very important people. And the fact they were doing this for Jesus kind of shows you how they were thinking of him at this, at this moment. And so because they laid palm branches down, the week before the resurrection is called Palm Sunday. Well, Jesus enters into what will be a very full week. All four Gospels do a great job at giving us the play-by-play of all the things that went on that week. We've been studying John's gospel, as you know, and John focuses heavily on that final night of Jesus' life when he spends up in the upper room with his disciples and all the things that went on there. He, uh, after that, they go on to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays. Eventually, he will be arrested and will take in before the religious leaders. And he'll be questioned by several groups of people. But finally, Jesus will be standing before a man named Pilate. Now, now Pilate is the Roman governor of Judea. Now, the religious, religious leaders, they want Jesus dead. But Pilate, he's in a real conundrum, isn't it? He doesn't think that Jesus has done anything that merits the death penalty. And so what we read through John chapter 18 is this back and forth between Jesus and Pilate and Pilate and the crowd that arrested Jesus and and Pilate is trying to figure out a way, how am I going to get out of this because I don't think Jesus has done anything that merits the death sentence. What he does next, when we get into John chapter 19, many scholars have argued was Pilate's way to punish Jesus without killing him. Now, again, we don't know for sure, but a lot of scholars have made that argument. So, you know, you know, the fact that his behavior next and what he does, what we're going to read about, maybe that was Pilate's way of just going, let me beat on Jesus enough that maybe that will satisfy the Christ for his blood, and I don't have to kill the man, and he can go away. You'll see what I mean. Look at John chapter 19, verse 1. This is what happened. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. So the charge against Jesus, if you recall from our study leading up to this point, the charge against Jesus, one of the big ones was that he claimed to be the Messiah and translate to the king and the king of the Jews. And so what Pilate does is he kind of, he runs with this idea of Jesus being accused of being a king. And he has a purple robe put on him. Now purple back in this day was very expensive to produce. So the only people that could really afford this color were very rich people and royalty. So they have this purple robe that would have been fitting for a king. And they put that on Jesus. But it's mockery. It's not acknowledging he's the king. They're, they're mocking him by this behavior. Um, they, 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 they tease him. They pretend to bow down and worship him. They say, oh, hail king of the Jews. They also give him a crown. 
Now, now this is no costume crown. Somebody had gone out and, and, and got some thorns off of a, a thorn bush, very long thorns that grow over in Israel, and they, they twisted this thing together, and they didn't just set it on his head, they, they pushed it down, and, and you can just kind of visualize the, these, these thorns going into the brow of his head all the way around, and, and blood coming down. Now, I don't know if you've spent much time thinking about this crown of thorns, but let me maybe share something with you that maybe you haven't thought of before. You know, in the book of Genesis, when we learn that sin had been introduced into the world, one of the specific consequences of sin was what? Thorns. There's a specific mention that now the world, the earth, will produce thorns. So I believe it's only fitting that the Creator, at this point, wear a crown of thorns as He bore the sins of the world on the cross. As a consequence of sin, he is actually physically wearing that consequence. John also informs us that Pilate had Jesus flogged, and this was no little thing at all. In fact, to be flogged, not to be overly graphic, but a Roman soldier would, would take a leather whip, and it was knotted at the end, and it was tied and weighted with pieces of metal and bone, and they would just beat the living daylights out of somebody. Being flogged was no little thing. It left people mangled and disabled and and if they even survived it at all, history has many records of people who never even survived a Roman flogging. You know, they, there was this saying we read about in other parts of the Bible because Paul survived this. That he said, I received the 40 lashes minus one. Do you realize what he means by that? It was typical that if you lashed or flogged somebody at the hands of a Roman soldier, if you got 40 of those lashes, that was enough to kill a man. So if you got 39 minus 1, it means that we're going to bring you to the point of death, but not kill you. This is a very violent punishment. Jesus got this, and he did survive it. But I think it should pain us, even today, all these years later, that the Son of God was subjected to such cruelty. That somebody who was completely innocent, never sinned once. Who, who went through all with purest intentions, it should pain us that he was treated as somebody who was guilty. You know, when we go to communion every week, we should never forget. We say this all the time. We don't ever forget. We don't ever forget what Jesus has done for us. But Jesus, he did survive it. He survived the mocking. He survived the flogging. He, he survived everything. And again, I'm not trying to be graphic here, but Jesus had to have been a complete mess I mean, maybe that's exactly what Pilate was, was hoping for, that maybe the Jewish leaders who arrested him now would have some pity on him. They would take one look at Jesus, completely beat to tarnation, unrecognizable most likely. And, and they would say, okay, mercy, that's that, okay. We, you know what, we're satisfied. Maybe that's what Pilate was hoping for. Look at verse 4. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And you think about what Jesus just got at the hands who said, I don't see any reason to punish him. It doesn't make sense, does it? He's really caught between a rock and a hard place. But when, verse 5, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. And as soon as the chief priest and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. 
But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. See, this is now the third time since Jesus was handed over to Pilate that he has come out and addressed this mob that is growing outside of his palace. And this time, though, he takes Jesus with him. And like I said, Jesus had to have been a mess. But this crowd was completely unfazed by what had already happened to Jesus. They still wanted him dead. But Pilate cannot bring himself to call the order. So he says, I don't have any reason to do it. You guys take him. And he's definitely trying to get out of this. And so Since he can't, he goes back inside his palace, and he begins to question Jesus even some more. So look at the second half of verse 9. He goes back inside, and he says, Jesus, where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize that I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? So Pilate continues the questioning. And Jesus decides not to talk to him. I'm not going to answer your questions. Which is an interesting detail that John gives us because it actually is a fulfillment of prophecy. You don't need to turn to the book of Isaiah, but I'll show you the, the scripture on the screen behind me. There's all, all pro, there's tons of prophecies about Jesus written hundreds and hundreds of years before any of this. Let me show you one of them. Isaiah 53 verse 7, a direct reference to what the Messiah would endure He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before its shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. The gospel writers clearly point us to this prophecy where Jesus fulfilled it. Pilate, clearly frustrated with Jesus because Pilate is trying to get out of this predicament that he's been in. And Jesus isn't helping him get out. I kind of get this sense, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm reading into it a little bit. I wasn't there, of course. I kind of get this sense Pilate's got a little bit of this, come on, Jesus, help me out here. Give me something that I can work with to get us all out of this mess. But Jesus didn't answer his questions. And then Pilate, being frustrated, he brings up the fact, don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I can do? Don't you know I've got the power over your life right now? And then Jesus does answer that. Verse 11, Jesus says, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. That's exactly what a leader wants to hear. No, it's not. Therefore, Jesus said, The one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. So Jesus is like, Pilate, your so-called authority, you would not even have it if it wasn't for God. Pilate, you're in this leadership position because God allows you to be, not because you're special. And you know, one day God is going to call Pilate onto account for what he did and didn't do with that responsibility that he had, what he didn't do with the privileges that he was given, just like each and every one of us will be one day. I don't think Pilate wanted Jesus to die. That's pretty obvious in Scripture. But he is no innocent third-party bystander in the, in the crucifixion of Jesus at all. 
I think that's why Jesus said to him, Pilate, those who turned you over to, owe me over to you, they're guilty of greater sin. But Jesus never said to him, Pilate, you're not innocent. No, he just says they're guilty of a greater sin. But he never said, Pilate, you walk away from this without anything. Look at verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. I don't know exactly what he did to try to set Jesus free. There's some details here we don't know, but he was making effort to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So they're really now jumping on to this, Jesus is claiming to be a king bandwagon here. Verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. This is a good detail because they arrested Jesus in the early, early mornings of Friday morning. And this is all these shenanigans have been going on until about midday here. It's about lunchtime. And then it says in the next part of verse 14, Pilate said, here is your king. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate wants to know. And they said, we have no king but Caesar. The chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Basically, what John is letting us know is that Pilate, there was absolutely nothing he could do really to get out of this dilemma that he's in. And what finally is the straw that breaks the, the camel's back here is when they start accusing Pilate of not being a friend to Rome. You're no friend of Caesar. You're not loyal to your leader. You're not doing your job. Pilate's really in between a rock and a hard place, and that criticism is kind of what sends him over the edge. He's like, I think he starts to get this message, you're with Jesus, not with Caesar. And that's not something Pilate is going to let stand. And so he says, all right then, kill him. There's a detail in here that John leaves out that the other gospel writers include. You don't need to turn over to Matthew's gospel, but I'll show it to you. And it's an important detail about Pilate. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 24, it says, When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting. Remember, Pilate's job is what? Keep the peace. And he sees this uproar starting. He took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. You know, from from a uh, strictly human standpoint, the trial of Jesus truly is the greatest crime, it's the greatest tragedy ever in history. But if you think about it from a divine point of view it's the fulfillment of prophecy it's the accomplishment and fulfillment of the will of God you know I've said many times in this series that God is in complete control and nothing is happening that to Jesus that he didn't already know was going to happen this was foretold Jesus knew but but even though that is true that God planned all of this it does not absolve the participants of their responsibility in it. 
Because, you know, that's one of those questions. If this was all God's plan, isn't everybody just a bunch of puppets in God's plan? How can they really be guilty? Well, it doesn't work like that. And there's this great little detail in Scripture. Um, Peter, the apostle, he addresses that very question on the day of Pentecost, about 53 days into the future from what we're reading right here. And again, you don't need to turn there. I'll just show you. It's in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is preaching to this large group of people in Jerusalem. No doubt most of them had seen Jesus get crucified. They were all aware of what happened. Some of them were even probably the ones screaming out for Jesus' blood. And Peter says this to them. This man, he's talking about Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you... With the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. Peter's saying, you're not innocent. This was God's plan, but you're not innocent in this. And there is a deeper thing here that I want us to know and recognize about, about really what we believe and about what God has done for us. Jesus went to the cross because of the sins of the world. From the Garden of Eden until the return of Christ, every sin that was ever committed or will be committed in the future, Jesus paid for those sins. We are all sinners. Every last one of us. We're not going to make it through this world without sinning. And that sin separates us from God. We've all had a hand. We've all, in a way, partnered with wicked men that led up to the events that we're reading about right here in John 19. I take to heart what Peter said in Acts chapter 2. Joe Williams, with the help of wicked men, you put Jesus on the cross. No, I didn't swing a hammer that day. But my sins and your sins were a contributing factor behind why Jesus was put on the cross. You know, if, if you've spent much time in church, you could probably, without the help of the Bible, tell the rest of the story of Jesus. What happens to him after Pilate turns him over to the executioners? John does a very good job, as well as the other um, um, gospel writers, of giving us the play-by-play. -play. When you put it together, we learn this, that, that Jesus had to carry his own cross to the place of crucifixion. That's what we'll read about next. And it was most likely they, they, they put the crossbar of the cross. It wasn't the whole cross. They put the crossbar on Jesus, and they said, you got to carry that all the way to the crucifixion site. And, and harmonizing some of the Gospels here, we learn that Jesus didn't make it all the way, or maybe he was going too slow, we're not sure. But somewhere along this walk to the crucifixion site, they pull a man from the crowd, his name was Simon, from Cyrene, and they make him carry that crossbeam the rest of the way for Jesus. They, they get to the execution site. It's known um, in Scripture as the place of the skull, also called Golgotha, um, that was a normal execution site. It would have been known well. This is the place that the Romans used often to execute its prisoners. So this wasn't some obscure place. Now, they don't know exactly where that place is in the Holy Land. They can get pretty close to it. There's, there's a couple places, if you were to visit Jerusalem today, where they believe, many will say, this is where Jesus was crucified. One of those places is known as the Garden Tomb. And, um, and if you look, there's this rock formation 
that if you look closely, you can Google this and see it yourself, but if you look closely, that actually looks like a skull in the rock. And many people have said, that's got to be the place. I've been there, and um, whether that is the exact place or not, I can tell you it's a special place. It's the meaningful place. The way that it's um, put together and laid out, and, and there's a tomb nearby that many think was Jesus' tomb. We don't know these things for sure, but kind of makes sense. But th- that's where this would have gone down, and this was a very populous place. This was the place where um, um, many people would have just been passing by, and it makes a lot of sense. But we know this, that Jesus had to carry his own cross. And we also know this, that Jesus was crucified between two criminals. And the gospel makes it very clear that this too was a fulfillment of prophecy. If you were just taking notes, you can write down Isaiah 53, 12. That's where this prophecy is, that he would be, he would be executed among criminals. He would be treated as one of them, another prophecy fulfilled. We know this is from the gospels, that Pilate hung a sign above Jesus' head that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And he had that written in three different languages. And as you read the Gospels, you learn that the religious leaders of the day, they hated this sign and they protested this sign. And they were offended that Pilate had referenced Jesus in writing as the King of the Jews. But I think Pilate wrote that sign because even though he didn't want to kill Jesus, it had to be justified. And if somebody claims to be a king and there's a connection of an uprising against Caesar and there's no loyalty to Rome, well, that's worth the death sentence. And he wanted everybody to know in all three languages would have caught the major groups of people, been able to read it at a very popular execution site. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. That's why he is dying. The sign was meant to reach lots of people. Remember, it's Passover. And so the city of Jerusalem is extra full this week, people coming in. There was no doubt that many people, even if they didn't know what was going on in the hours leading up to that, they would have come and they'd seen this execution going about their normal daily routines. But it was interesting, this sign. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. But many have argued that this sign probably unintentionally served as a gospel track. Have you ever been handed a gospel track? Do you know what those are? Sometimes if you're at a carnival or parade, there might be somebody walking around, they'll come hand you something. It's usually a fold-out deal or a page flipper, but it presents the gospel. Those are gospel tracks. You're supposed to read it and know what the gospel's all about. Some have argued, I think that sign's more of a gospel track because Jesus was crucified with criminals And when one of the criminals learned that he's being crucified next to Jesus, the king, he asked, and he's granted permission that very day to enter into Jesus' kingdom, paradise. We know this, that the soldiers divided up Jesus' clothes. This, too, is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's found in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. Let me read it for you. It just predicted that the Messiah's clothes, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. That's a pretty specific prophecy about Jesus. There's dozens of these, dozens and dozens of these prophecies. All of them came true with Jesus. We know that Jesus' mother, Mary, stood and watched the whole thing. Moms, can you imagine? Moms, can you imagine? Jesus' mother stood there at the cross. She watched 
All of it. Now, we first meet Mary and Jesus' mother inside of John's gospel at a wedding. Remember, Jesus turned the water into wine, the wedding at Cana? That's when we first meet Mary. And we see her again in John's gospel preparing for a funeral now. We meet her at a wedding. We see her again getting ready to bury her son. Interesting detail. I want to harmonize some of the Gospels for you. In Luke chapter 2, we read that when Mary and Joseph had the baby Jesus, all those years earlier, it was customary. They took him into Jerusalem to the temple to have him consecrated before the Lord and to have him blessed. And there was a man there named Simeon. And and we learned this little detail in Luke chapter 2 about Simeon. He was a godly man. And somewhere during his life, Um, The Lord had told him that he would not die until he sees the Messiah with his own eyes. And when the baby Jesus is presented at the temple, he finds out that he's there. And Simeon goes and he meets Jesus as a baby. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 34 and 35, he has something to say to Mary and Joseph. And he says this, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then catch this next part. And he says, Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, that would be hard news, I think, for a teenager who found herself to be pregnant in mysterious ways. And now she has the Savior of the world in her arms. And Simeon says, a sword, Mary, is going to pierce your own soul too. There, There is no doubt in my mind that here at the foot of the cross, watching her beloved son suffer and die, she is in this moment experiencing that sword pierce her own soul. How much pain and grief can you go through as a mother? But let me tell you something. Her silence in this moment, tells me a whole lot about who Jesus was. It tells me something about Jesus' identity, about his deity. Because who else in Jesus' life had better insight into his true identity than his own mother? Now think about this. If anybody could have rescued Jesus in that moment, if anybody could have said anything that would have changed the circumstances, it would have been his mother, Mary. All she had to do is to stand up and say, he's telling a bunch of lies. I'm his mother, and I know, and he is not telling you the truth. It's all phony. It's false. I'm his mom. Believe me. And we've read in other parts of the New Testament, even this series, that when Jesus healed specifically the blind man who had been blind from birth, nobody believed it until he brought his parents in. Remember? His parents said, yep, he's been blind forever. Oh. All Mary had to do was speak up. But she said nothing, and her silence in that moment speaks to the fact true, Jesus truly was the Son of God. Because what mother in her right mind would let her son suffer, die, and be punished like that for a lie. She doesn't. She conceived him as a virgin, and everything the Lord told her in her life absolutely came true. And she stood there in silence, and she watched because she knew this was God's plan. We know this from the Gospels, that Jesus is recorded making seven statements 
while he hung on the cross. John's gospel tells us two of those statements. First one, Jesus said, I am thirsty. The second one is this. Jesus said, it is finished. Now, there's a Greek word. The New Testament was written in Greek, translated to English. There's this Greek word, and that Greek word is tetelestai. And that's translated into English as it is finished. Tetelestai means it is finished, it stands finished, and it will always be finished. You think about what Jesus is saying when he says it is finished. Yes, it is true. His sufferings in that moment is finished. But it is finished means something more than Jesus' pain is over. There's so much more in this dramatic word. It means that everything in the Old Testament, the prophecies, everything leading up to this point, the fulfillment of all of it that the Lord said, and and everything about raising up his nation of Israelites, all of that, once and for all, sacrifice of sin, that is finished. That Greek word, tetelestai, doesn't mean a thing to us. But it was used in various ways by different groups of people Back in Jesus' day. So how they read that word, it would have had deeper meaning than for us. For like example, a servant that was reporting to his master. Tetelestai holds this idea that I've completed the work assigned to me. That word gets associated there. I've completed the work that you were given me to do. That is true of Jesus. When a priest back in this day would examine an animal for a sacrifice, there were very specific regulations for what was qualified as appropriate sacrifices. And when a priest would find one, that word would apply to telestai. Jesus, of course, is the perfect Lamb of God without spot or blemish. You know, when an artist or a writer back in that day would finish a painting or a manuscript, he or she might say, Tetelestai. It is finished. You know, the death of Jesus on the cross, it does for, for us complete a picture. A, a picture of a painting that God had been painting since the earliest moments of creation. A picture that God was painting that only comes into clarity once Jesus goes to the cross and suffers and dies there. It is finished. You know, I think perhaps the most meaningful meaning of this Greek word tetelestai is used by merchants of the day. And they would use this word to express this. The debt is paid in full. When Jesus gave himself on the cross... He fully met the demands of the law. He paid the debt. It is finished. You know, you read about the sacrifices of the Old Testament all over. And those sacrifices never could take away sin. Those sacrifices over and over said they covered our sin. In their blood, they covered our sin. But the Lamb of God, Jesus, shed his blood to take away sins once and for all. It is is finished. There was a lot behind what Jesus said, those dying words of the Messiah. Finally, we know this from the Gospels, there was a real rush to get Jesus killed and off the cross. Look down at verse 31. Let's read about that. This will be the last text we'll read this morning. Now it was the day of preparation, verse 31, 
And the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came, broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it was given test, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and, the, and another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. A couple details here, not to be graphic, but... Oftentimes, crucifixions were a very slow way to die. It was not a fast way to die. And, 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 and Romans were especially cruel when it came to executions, and the cross was an extremely cruel way to die. And so what would happen is that they would sometimes hang on the cross for days. And, and what would happen is, is that um, as they're hanging there, your body would naturally slump. And when you're in a weakened state already, that makes that very hard to breathe. And so they would use their legs to kind of push themselves up a little bit. Breathe, exhale, go down, lift up. And this could go on for days until finally most people on, the, on crosses died of really the inability to breathe, suffocation, more than their injuries. Well, why would you break somebody's legs? So they cannot push themselves up anymore, and they suffocate faster. So there's a rush. It's a bad look during the Passover celebration to have all these guys hanging on crosses while you're trying to celebrate the Passover. And so they're like, listen, we don't want them hanging up there all weekend long. Let's break their legs and let's get on with this. So the soldiers go out there, and they break the legs of the first two criminals and they come to Jesus and they realize he had already said it is finished gave up his spirit and he is dead now I think about this it is remarkable to me that the soldiers did not do what they were commanded to do break Jesus's legs but that they did do what they were not supposed to do and that was stab Jesus in the side and in both of these situations they are very important details because they both fulfill scripture again all of this was foretold and they didn't even know that they were fulfilling prophecy and john and the other gospel writers they point out these details to us in the text Here, here's the detail about the broken bones how jesus bones were not broken how that fulfilled scripture when it came to passover all throughout the years they had to have a perfect Passover sacrifice. And it's very specific in Scripture. You can read about it in Exodus 12 and Numbers chapter 9 and Psalm 34 that the bones of the Passover lamb should not be broken. And if you do, you can't use it. Jesus is that once and for all Passover sacrifice for all the sins during Passover. He is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. That's how Jesus is described. And when they went to break his legs, they, could, they didn't do it. And it fulfilled scripture. This perfect sacrifice had no broken bones. Sometimes when we talk about the sacrifice, we say things like, Jesus, thank you for being broken for us. And I always like, well, his legs weren't broken. But I get what they're trying to say. You got beat up and bruised. I'm comfortable with all that, but broken. 
The other detail is that he was pierced in his side. And in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, there's a direct prophecy about Jesus that his side will be pierced for us. John will later write in Revelation about the Savior is the one who was pierced for us. You know, these details soon become very significant to John. You know, besides the fact that John's pointing out fulfillment of prophecy, John is writing in a season all these years later where there's people, these false teachers that had infiltrated the church and they are preaching this false message that Jesus didn't really die. And so here John, all these years later as an old man, he's writing about Jesus and the fact that he really did die. And there's false teachers saying they didn't have a real body and that Jesus really didn't resurrect from the dead and die and, and, and come back to life, all of that stuff. And John points out here that no, Jesus had a real body and it really did die and he bled and he was stabbed and all these details are important. And then he gives one last detail. He said, the man who was given testimony as all this is saying it's true. Well, who's the one that's giving testimony? It's John. He's saying, friends, listen, I was there, and it's all true. I was there. I held his mother at the foot of the cross, and she cried in my arms, and I took care of her after Jesus died. I was there. I watched him die. I watched him bleed. It's all true. That's what John's trying to say. And friends, I want to leave you with this today. It is all true. Every last detail of it. John wrote this all so that we would read it and we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the perfect Lamb of God who gave his life for you and me. And if that's true, what else is true? That he rose to life three days later. And if that's true, what else is true? He's coming back again. And all true believers over all time will be in glory with the Lord forever. And if that's true, what else is true? That what we choose in this life and how we live in this life are of eternal significance. It's all true. Do you believe it?